Greetings fellow humans and welcome to another episode of Off Grid with me, Dave. And me, Void. Yes, it's the world's leading not really about crosswords podcast. Can we say that? I think think we yes, can say that. Definitely. Yeah. Before the recording, we took a crossword apart to see how it worked, and putting it back together again has left us with two spare anagrams and a spoonerism. We can't quite see where they belong, but at least we have each been able to pick out a word that might lead us somewhere interesting and a favourite clue. That crossword this time around is Vulcan's Guardian Cryptic Crossword number 28992 from Monday the 13th of February 2023. Go and click the link in our blog to solve it if you wish to avoid spoilers. Elsewise, put it out of your thoughts entirely and carry on listening to our fascinating blatherings. And these sort of crosswordy blatherings always entail necessarily general knowledge. So we best check. Are you there, General? Hello, yes. Reporting for duty. Marvellous to have you back. Thank you. Good to be back. So... Three of our favourite clues, we'll read those out to you and then later on explain how they worked. General, what was your favourite clue, please? My favourite was six down. Say what Pooh played with in Mythical River, four letters. And Pooh is capitalised as in Winnie the Pooh. I went with 27 down, that's whiskey, port and bitter called for three letters. And Dave? I chose uh, 19 across, which said... Learnt about flat charge. Six letters. As I say, either try and work those out for yourself or ignore them. But meanwhile, General, what word did you pick out of the puzzle and why? Well, I would hate to disappoint you by not talking about genetics. So I picked fly a kite uh, with the emphasis on fly. As I'm sure you and all your listeners are, are familiar with. Fruit flies, uh, Drosophila melanogaster, is used as a common model organism in genetics research. I had a, um, a biology teacher at A-level who said it drosophilia, and I was mocked roundly in my first year of studying genetics at university for that. So thank you, <laughs> Miss J. Drosophilia, drosophila. Really loving dross, yeah. Yes. So that was a little embarrassing, but I got over it and stuck with genetics. So um, the really fun thing with fruit flies is that the people who started naming the genes that they discovered in flies had a lot of fun with it. So anytime they would mutate a gene and it would make the fly or its egg or its larva look interesting, they would come up with a very interesting name. So, for example, if you mutate the hedgehog gene, the larva have spikes all over them, hence hedgehog. And then, spiky of course, flies. Uh, yeah. the, the larvae, like the little oh, the the maggots, yeah, spiky maggots called hedgehog. And then, of course, they, uh, they started finding different variants and named one of them Sonic Hedgehog. Uh, <sighs> had a lot of fun with it. There's a gene called Van Gogh because the hair on the fly is swirly, like in Starry Night. Oh, just... not, as, not with one ear. No, no. <laughs> I don't think they have external ears at all. Oh, yeah. So, of course, this is all fun. Wasn't, wasn't um, there something about, certainly some insects, hearing through the joints of, of the antennae or something? Or through the legs? Possibly. No, hang on. That's crickets make noise with their yeah. legs. Stridulation. Same to you. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry. Yes, carry on. Yeah. 
So this is all fun, you know, when you're in a lab and back before the internet in a less enlightened era of medicine also. But of course, now a lot of these genes that were discovered in flies have the same names in humans initially. So as more and more is known about the role of genetics in health and in disease, you end up with doctors having to tell someone, well, you've been diagnosed with this disease that's caused by a mutation in sonic hedgehog. In your hedgehog gene. (laughs) And of course, as the internet has made medicine a bit more democratic and people have the ability to go do their own research on the condition they've been diagnosed with, they find all of these jokes about the gene name, which obviously is not great. So unfortunately, this sort of quirky and whimsical era of gene naming may be uh, numbered. Yeah, but I, I came up with a, I have my own favorite gene names while we still have them. One of them, actually, I noticed a strong alcohol theme in the uh, the crossword. My all-time favorite Drosophila gene is called Cheat Date, because the, the flies have a low alcohol tolerance. Aha, uh-huh. right. So I have, a, I have some others, if you guys wanted to play a little mini quiz as a warm-up. Okay, yes, ask away. Uh, Tin Man. Tin Man. So that will be a Wizard of Oz reference. Yeah. Now, so courage, they're scared? No, brain, they're stupid. (laughs) No, have no heart. Heart. Oh, it was the heart. (sighs) Yes, it was the scarecrow who wanted the brain and it was the lion who wanted the courage, wasn't it? Right, so yes, heart, yes, yes. Wait, if they have no heart, I'm guessing they don't live very long. They don't live very long. Mm. Yeah, not all of these are survivable phenotypes. Right. Okay. Uh, the next... Not good mutations, then, no. Not good mutations. The next one is probably easier. Ken and Barbie. Ken. Uh, so are these two different? I believe or one? it's just. I believe it's just one gene. No genitals. Yes. No external genitalia. <laughs> yes. That's an unfortunate fly. Uh, and then Maggie. Um. It's a little trickier. Uh, hates coal miners. Um, <laughs> it, it won't work on a farm no more. Think an American, American Maggie, not a British Maggie. Oh, so like Maggie Simpson. Yes. Oh. Um. So it's a dummy. No, it doesn't speak, but flies don't speak. So uh, I don't know. The youngest one. It never gets old. Exactly. Ah. It never... <laughs> never grows up. Right. Never develops past an early stage. And the last one I'll be astonished if you got, I didn't actually know this one myself, Cleopatra. I mean, I do know that the famous Cleopatra that we all know of was Queen Cleopatra VII. That's probably not helpful. Uh, Resistant to snake venom. (laughs) Ooh, I'm going to give you that. What? The opposite, but very close. It's... The mutation Cleopatra is fatal if it interacts with a mutation in a gene called ASP. Oh, <laughs> groan. Oh, wow. I'm pleased to have got in the ballpark. Um, <laughs> do you have the data as to why the ASP gene is so-called? Uh, sadly, I don't, actually. I couldn't find that quickly. Is it probably just an acronym for something that I can imagine? Perhaps. It might be. I can look that up. Drosophila was not... Caligula's sister. That was Drusilla. 
Right. It's easy to get those confused. So I just thought I'd you know clear that up in case anyone was wondering. And it's not drosophilia, even if your biology teacher says it is. <laughs> that sounds like something you could get cancelled for as well. <laughs> uh, let's have a clue, Dave. Yes. All right. If you'll recall, the one that I picked out of the grid was learnt about flat charge six. Not a difficult clue by all accounts. I think learnt about fairly screams anagram. Uh, I just liked it for the quite. I like quite sneaky definitions. And you read flat charge, and you it's sort of trying to make you think about fixed uniform prices for things. But actually, in this context, it means a charge for a flat, which gets you to rental anagram of learnt. Very neat. Boyd, what did you uh, want to tell us about what caught your eye in the puzzle? I picked out Gladstone from the puzzle. And, of course, the first person you think of when you hear the name Gladstone is... William. William Ewart Gladstone. What? Surely Gladstone Small. The Ashes winning cricketer. Uh, oh, 86-87 tour down under. No? Right, fine, fine. We'll talk about the Prime Minister. Um, no, he... there, there'll be plenty of time for talking about cricket elsewhere. Yeah, I'm sure. I didn't know much about him. I knew he was born in Liverpool, and I knew he was Prime Minister at the end of the 19th century, and I knew he'd been Prime Minister more than once, and that he took turns with Disraeli. Dave was just holding up four fingers at me. Fortunately, all on All the one same hand, hand, not two on each hand. <laughs> because, yes, he was Prime Minister four times. Uh, in reading up about him, I noticed something I thought was a little bit interesting about him in his choice of chancellors. So, yes. any ideas about... Well, I think maybe Dave already knows, but General, any ideas about who was his Chancellor, both at the start of his first term as PM and at the start of his second term as PM. I can give you dates if that helps. Blank look. That is not going to help me. I only know Gladstone as a street and a high school in Vancouver. Okay. <laughs> Dave, do you know then? Well, this is something that obviously you could do, and I, I don't know whether, there, whether there's anything prohibiting current prime ministers from doing this, but they certainly haven't done it for around 100 years, which is, well, when you're appointing your cabinet, you could look at a, one of the portfolios and say, I think the best person to do that might possibly be me. Yeah. Yeah. So for a few years, he was his own chancellor while he was PM. Is that where you were going? Yes. Um, I'm not old. going anywhere from that, but I just <laughs> thought, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Anyway, I actually picked Gladstone because, well, I don't know anything about the derivation of the surname. As it was cleared in the crossword, it's made up of two words, glad and stone. And that makes it a portmanteau word. Mm-hmm. Not in the sense where you get two words sort of smashing into each other, like breakfast and lunch, creating brunch, but just being made up of two or more parts. <laughs> so that's a bit like the word portmanteau, which comes from the French words porte and manteau, meaning carry and mantle. But do you know what else Gladstone and portmanteau have in common? They're both bags. 
they are both bags. Gladstone, or, or luggage, at any rate. Yes. Yeah, Gladstone is a type of portmanteau. So I wondered, are there any other bags in this puzzle? Other bags? Other oh. bags, yeah. So we had bagpipes that went across, so that was a good start. This is true. Uh, we've got flyer kite, and I've got a couple of kite bags downstairs with my kites tucked away in. Uh, we have pig out, and that made me think of pig bag, the band who had a hit with. Uh, oh, was it? Just, it was just called pig bag, wasn't it? I think in the early eighties. Anyway, we also had bait, and in fishing, there's such a thing as a bait bag. Apparently, I didn't know that. Makes sense. Yeah. Within part of one of the other answers, we had solo. And I didn't know, but I just found out that Solo is the name of a New York-based bag and luggage manufacturer. Do you think Vulcan was doing a, a ghost theme here, then, perhaps? Well, I mean, maybe. You, you can never tell. Uh, we've also got Rye, R-Y-E, in the puzzle. And there's no such thing as a Rye bag, but oat sack apparently is the original meaning <laughs> of have a sack. I think, I think you're starting to stretch a little here for the theme. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, my next one is uh, stretch too. We've got cooperate, and at the start of that, you've got co-op, which is a British <laughs> supermarket, and you know you can get a plastic bag from them. Yeah, you probably have to pay ten bag, for yeah. each for them. Yeah. And, and we've also got revel. You're going to um, tell me that you get a bag of revels? You eat. can <laughs> get a bag <laughs> of revels. Yeah. If you don't know, revels is a brand of assorted chocolates which have different centres in them. Okay, so do you know what flavour Revels come in? Caramel? Uh, yes, there's a caramel toffee, I think. There's going to be disgusting ones like coffee or something, isn't there? There's ones. There's one that you don't want to get. Coffee is correct. There's a one with a wafer, I think, like a Kit Kat. Kind of, almost. No. There's a Malteser, so a sort of honeycomb right. one. I think there's, there's kind of fruity fondant ones, like a, a... Is there a strawberry one or something like that? Ah, well, there's a raisin. Oh, okay. So natural fruit in there. There's an orange flavour one, uh, a toffee and plain chocolate. Did I already say that? No. So my favourites are the coffee and the orange ones. So obviously Dave and I would be mutually compatible if we were sharing (laughs) a bag of Revels. Do you have any strong feelings on this, General? Uh, I haven't had a bag of Revels for a very long time. It was the caramel ones I remembered the most. So I would probably go for those, but I seem to remember I like them all. Yeah, I'm not mad on the toffee, but I could go for all of them. In looking this up, I discovered that coffee was actually a replacement flavour. They used to have a coconut one. Oh, okay. And I would have liked that too. And Mm. the raisin was a replacement too. That replaced peanuts, Mm. perhaps because of allergy issues. If you're going for a random chocolate, you don't want it to be a game of Russian roulette. And actually, the H2G2 website suggests various ways in which you can use a bag of Rebels. So either as a game of Russian roulette, if uh, some of the players have particular likes or dislikes, or they say you could use it as a decision maker. So you've got six flavours, so you're off the list of six things. If I get a raisin one, I'll do the washing up. If I get a coffee one, I'll... Watch a film. Nice. And also in 2008, apparently Revels did a marketing campaign to get rid of one of the flavours. They're going to chuck one out. Which one do you hate most? 
and the one that lost was what do you think Colobic coffee spot on yes coffee lost and it was replaced by strawberry which i would also like so there we are but apparently uh, coffee got reinstated the next uh. year because I, I can only assume that some coffee fans their outrage was as strong as the coffee, coffee. lobby is very uh, very strong you know so generally you had a a bit of a cheesy rant last time around so i thought i'd uh, go from savory to sweets this time from bags to chocolate not quite sure how i got there originally from gladstone but i did general would you like to explain your favorite clue to us please how it works i would so mine again was six down say what Pooh played with in mythical river i surprised myself a bit by not choosing an anagram which are usually my favorite clues this is a homophone um, so the word say indicates the homophone. What poo played with is sticks, as in twigs, branches. Uh, poo sticks is the game where you each choose a distinctive looking stick. You drop it over a bridge on the upstream side and then all run to the downstream side to see whose stick comes out first. It's an incredibly cheap way to entertain young children. <laughs> so poo played with sticks. And of course, Mythical River, S-T-Y-X, is a river from Greek myth. Just a really elegant clue and a really nice mental image of uh, Pooh playing in the Greek underworld. Yes. Yeah. I've, I've just noticed that when I uh, typed this clue out in my notes, I've written, say what Pooh played with in Mythical Fiver. <laughs> <laughs> mythical money, it feels like it is sometimes. Mm. Yes, that's a nice clue. Dave, what have you chosen out of the puzzle to tell us about? I'm kind of relieved that your choice went on a kind of strange ramble. Because <laughs> I was I was heading mine, Dave's Tedious Link, but I think that's a term that's been used somewhere else. Anyway, I picked out So Long. Now, I've got this weird, complicated ramble, so strap yourselves in. <laughs> we start off with the fact that this puzzle was in The Guardian. Okay. Uh, and The Guardian are based at King's Place, York Way in London. And in 2009, I went to a lecture at King's Place in that same building, which was for the 60th anniversary of the Journal of the Operational Research Society. I went to that because I worked for the publisher. Okay. And the guest speaker at this lecture was Tony Lewis, MBE, uh, now sadly passed. And he was there because he had had a number of articles published in the journal. Tony Lewis is best known, if at all, to the general populace as, as a cricket the, commentator, as the co-creator of. I was going to say to you, uh, you you will Lewis know it. and someone in Lewis. Yes. No, I'm blanking. I'm drawing a blank. Yeah. Well, I I I didn't expect you, but I I expected Void because he's the cricket. Oh, man. it is the cricket person. <laughs> oh right, yes, I'm there now. Sorry, yeah. I was trying to. I was, I thought I was being... Uh, led up, led I, up a garden path that you yeah, weren't. Yes. yes. The this, Duckworth Lewis method, which yes. has a new name now. He's got a third name, a, t- a pen yeah. on the end of it, hasn't it? I can't remember who, but... Uh, yes, this is That's the one. This is the method for calculating the target score for the team who are batting second in a limited overs cricket match that's interrupted by weather or other circumstances. Is that correct? Yes, spot on. Right. So when you said there'll be time to talk about cricket some other time, oh, absolutely, you, yes. you would. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, the the Duckworth Lewis method is also 
I don't mean Void likes his music. It's also the name of a side project band formed by Neil Hannon, who in turn is best known for the Divine Comedy. Yes. Hannon, by the way, wrote the themes for the sitcoms, the IT crowd and Father Ted. Mm-hmm. Incidentally, my January puzzle on mycrossword.co.uk also has a theme of Father Ted. Ha-ha. But another former member of the Divine Comedy was Joby Talbot. He played the piano and keyboards. And he wrote the theme for the sitcom The League of Gentlemen. Okay. But he also wrote the score for the film version of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, um, which Void almost mentioned earlier on. (laughs) And the opening credits of the film featured a song that was called, in tribute to the fourth Hitchhiker book, So Long and Thanks for All the Fish. Which brings us to the so long on the grid, you see. Of course, so long thanks for all the fish is not by anybody's imaginings the best known so long song in a film. I think that must surely be so long farewell. Alfreda's own goodbye. Indeed, from the sound of music. Um, I, I the first one I thought of was so long Frank Lloyd Wright, but I don't know if that's from a film. Simon and Garfunkel. Uh, I suspect it might not be. Anyway, The Sound of Music, a film which Christopher Plummer hated so much that he called it The Sound of Mucus. Yes. Um, Of course, the other lead in The Sound of Music was, of course, Julie Andrews, who also played the title role in Mary Poppins, which featured another song called Let's Go... Fly a Kite. There we go. (laughs) See, it all ties in. It all ties in. Are you familiar with the Pink Floyd album The Wall? I was just going to mention Pink Floyd as a kind of side linking into this. Yeah. Well, I, I only mention it because at the very end of the album, there's a quiet voice in the background that says, isn't this where? And at the very beginning of the album, there's a quiet voice that says, we came in. Very good. Ah. Which is what you made me think of, Dave, with your ramble. Yeah. Well, in that film version of Hitchhikers, I don't know if you remember, there is a scene where the escape pod from the Heart of Gold crash lands on the Bogon home planet, Volksphere. Right. And the sound effect of when when the escape pod crashes onto the planet uses the end of the Pink Floyd song, In the Flesh, which has a big kind of crashing sound at the end of it, uh, and this is in tribute to the fact that Douglas Adams, the author of The Hitchhiker's Guide, was a king guitarist himself and a friend of Dave Gilmore. Mm-hmm. In fact, for Adams' 42nd birthday, he was given the opportunity to go on stage and play with Pink Floyd. There are what you might call videos of this on YouTube, but they are pretty poor quality you know, audience members' videos for sort of wobbly phones, you know, you can imagine. And very um, low-resolution camera and, phones from yeah, that, so that date as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact, it was Adams who provided the title for the album The Division Bell. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that either. What, why? I don't know. I think the band were asking around for what can we call this, and he suggested it. But what, what the reason behind it was, I don't know. Well, The Division Bell is a bell that's rung in Parliament, in Parliament. for some reason, I forget. Going Maybe. into recess or something, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, Dave Gilmore has raised money um, for the Save the Rhino Foundation, 
Ah, which Dave is now showing us a lovely t-shirt. Uh, a t-shirt that was of... Adam's also raised money for, I believe. He was the patron of it, yes, mm-hmm. for some time. So there we are. That's uh, it's all little circular things tying into your near, nearly mention of Hitchhikers early on and your, your nearly mention of cricket earlier on and <laughs> and tying my choice of clue into, uh, into the general's choice of clue. It's all holistic. It is the interconnectedness of all things. So... Uh, I think that's gone on so long uh, that we'd better turn to your choice of clue before we turn to drink. Remind us what it was. Yeah, I chose 27 down from the puzzle. It's whiskey, port and bitter called for, three letters. And I like this because it's slightly unusual in that it's made up of three parts rather than the usual two parts of uh, definition and wordplay. And here we've got an extra definition. So we've got whiskey, rye is a type of whiskey, And then we've got port. Rye is a port in southern England, probably best known as one of the medieval sank ports. And then we've got bitter called for. So called for here is another homophone indicator. And it's bitter in the sense of uh, dry humour. So that's rye, W-R-Y, bitter, homophone to R-Y-E. Rye, which is the answer. So I liked that for it being a very simple, yet having several components and having a nice surface of someone at the bar getting around. Getting around around of drinks in. Yeah, it's a good one, that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, time for a quiz. So I'm going to go back to fly a kite and I'm going to focus on the kite half. And actually, Void, I didn't know that you were a big kite flyer, so these might be very easy. Well, I used to work in a shop that sold kites, so maybe. Oh, well, I'll, I'll sit well, back and relax then. It's been a while. It's been a while. <laughs> well, the pressure is on you then. So various countries have banned kite flying at some point in their history. Uh, which European country is on that list and why? Hmm. I mean, just all kite flying. Large kites specifically. Large kites. I can imagine a couple of possible reasons. Yeah, I'm, I mean, you're not allowed to fly kites or drones or whatever close to aeroplanes or aerodromes. So that would be a, a sensible reason for banning them. But countrywide, that's interesting. I can imagine possibly early on that nations might be afraid of spying in the way we've just had possibilities of balloons being shot down you can imagine someone with you know cameras on a kite perhaps that wouldn't wouldn't have as great a range as a balloon admittedly fear of drawing down lightning (laughs) well yeah or indeed if we're past kind of electrical industrialization age you know risks of flying the thing and bumping into overhead pylons and cables Mm. and things or is it a case of signalling? People are thought to be sending signals across the channel to the enemy, something like that. So it's 20th century, and it's related to state paranoia, but not espionage. Oh, okay. Who would be paranoid? Do, um, is this a kind of East-West Germany kind of thing? Is it, is it smuggling? People afraid of smuggling things across the border? It's afraid of smuggling people over the border in East Germany. Ah, nicely done. Yeah, because you can that? get power kites. Are you going to talk more about kites? Yes. 
Okay, I'll stop. <laughs> yeah, there was a, a lot of these, these sites, you know, facts about kites, they all copy each other. And a lot of them said they were banned in Japan because people were losing too many work hours. They were banned in China during the Cultural Revolution. But it was really hard to find any real documentation to back that up. So To be fair, most things were banned in China during the Cultural Revolution. It's true, <laughs> yeah. I also, uh, these sites, they all, one of them had made a mistake that was ambiguous grammar that was then copied onto all the other sites that I thought was quite amusing. Uh-huh. I'll read it out. More adults in the world fly kites than children. It would need to be pretty windy to fly a child. <laughs> I... Another bane of my life is uh, vague comparisons where it says more people do X and you kind of go, what than do Y or than they used to do or than you think they ought to be doing or mm. what, you know? Yeah. I, I have seen children flown by kites, <laughs> by powerful kites that can lift you off the ground. Okay. There's a red kite that flies around my neighbourhood, but I don't think it was strong enough to pick up a child. <laughs> Well, here there's lots of people uh, doing kite surfing. I was actually once kayaking with some friends off uh, the, the beach in Vancouver, and a kite surfer landed on my friend's kayak and knocked him out. <laughs> he was I very mean, apologetic. The Coast Guard came and had a word. I mean, that's some aim. Mm. <laughs> there's so much possibility not to have done that, and yet he managed to. Mm. Yeah. Sounds like an interesting insurance claim. <laughs> Oh, she was fine. So I was once doing a paraglide. I was doing a course in the French Alps. And I did my first proper flight where I actually jumped, not just up and down a slope and landing further down the slope, but going off a cliff and soaring over the village. And I made my way towards the landing field and started coming in. And I thought, that, that tree's quite big, isn't it? Oh, I seem to be heading towards that tree. Oh, I really am heading towards that tree, aren't I? Um, um, oh dear, this is not, not good. And at that moment, I remembered the training when I said, if you want to avoid something, look away from it. So I looked away <laughs> from the tree and the mere act of doing that shifts my shoulders slightly and I managed to not hit the tree. Well done, me. Yeah. Well done. There is an art, or they say a knack, to flying. <laughs> Throw yourself at the ground and miss. Throw yourself at the tree and miss. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) What's next? So kites have been used for many purposes over the years. We talked about a couple of them. Uh, Spying, signaling, uh, to lift people and objects, uh, weather forecasting, measuring distances, and in religious ceremonies. But how have they been used in science? I found, obviously, one of these is very well known, but there's another that is, I think was new to me, so I think less well-known. I presume Benjamin Franklin is the well-known one. Yes. Yeah, yeah. that we touched on, he flew, didn't he fly a key? Into a storm. A wire from the kite down the string attached to a key, I think, so that he could then attach that to a circuit or something. I don't really yeah, know the he, story. Yeah, he's done it to, to prove that lightning is caused by electricity. Right. So other science uses of hmm. kites... I mean, they were used as reconnaissance early on in World War One, I, I think. Even you had uh, people lifting ones. So you could lift a person up who could then take photographs from on high, early aerial photos. How about sampling in terms of putting some gadget in the, in the kite 
that you can then fly up to a certain height and sample what's in the air at that height or something like that. Good shout. I'm sure that has been done. It's not the one I was looking okay. for, but it's probably correct. Nice idea. Anyway. So I mean, why would you be needing to use a kite in science? It's going to be something to do with air and altitude wind measurements? Uh, I'll give you a clue. It was used in a very historic first, and I've been to the site where one end of this happened, and it's in St. John's, Newfoundland in Canada. Oh, right. First of all, I was, I was thinking it's going to be the Wright Brothers, but that's the wrong location for that. That's Kitty Hawk, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Now, Newfoundland is probably one of the closest places to Ireland in North America, right? That's correct. And that would be relevant because they would be trying to pick up a signal that had been sent to them in uh, 1901? Yes. Marconi used a kite to set the antenna to receive the first transatlantic radio signal. Oh, very well done. Nice. And the site in St. John's is now called Signal Hill. Oh, right. Good. And the final question, bringing us back to the way that fly a kite was clued in this crossword, how are kites used in falconry? Ah, well, now... are, are we are we talking about the same sort of kites, or are we talking about the actual bird that is the kite, like the one that flies over my neighbourhood? How is a man-made kite used <laughs> to train falcons? Okay. Okay. So, I mean, I guess we're talking modern falconry, because old-fashioned falconry they were used for hunting, to hunt. Well, I don't know, rabbits. Okay, because we're looking at how the kite, as in the toy. Now I'm trying to work out the connection to falconry, so I'm sort of okay. flying a kite as to what falconry would be gotcha. needing the kite for. Is it to train the falcons to hunt either the kite or something that gets dropped from a kite? Yeah, they, they use the kite, they attach bait, which is another answer in this grid, and they train the birds to fly higher than they would in nature. Oh, okay. okay. Why? I don't know. <laughs> Is it a case of, look, my falcon can fly higher than your falcon? Potentially to get a better view of prey. Okay. I did a, yeah. uh, a falconry experience in Yorkshire a few years ago, and uh, the guy who ran the operation said that he makes a lot of money from clearing seagulls from garbage dumps, clearing airports, and uh, mm. sometimes in hunting as well. Right. Mm. And going back to cricket i think there's a cricket ground where they regularly have a bird of prey flying about to try and get rid of the pigeons i can't remember mm. where that is though well you can edit that in later <laughs> <laughs> or out i think all out. right okay <laughs> thanks for that general that's brilliant you're welcome okay it's time for us to say so long and thanks for listening to off grid assuming, of course, that you haven't just had this playing to keep the cat company or something. If you go to offgrid.tlmb.net, you'll find details for this episode and for past episodes, as well as links via which you can contact us should you wish to do so. Yes, and my latest crossword was in The Independent on the 28th of February, so go and check that out and see if you can spot the theme, which is something we've talked about on Off grid before.
General, anything you'd like to recommend this episode? Yes, I would like to recommend following the Twitter account Enniscath, that's E-N-N-I-S-C-A-T-H. And I would also recommend a little book called Introducing Epigenetics, a Graphic Guide. Can confirm. I've read it and I learned more about epigenetics than I knew before, that's for sure. Right. That's one to add to my massive to-be-read pile then. (laughs) Okay. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Off-Grid is a TLMB production. Thank you to Vulcan and The Guardian for the crossword this time around, and to The Trudy for our theme tune. Hello to our new listener in Pakistan. Welcome. If you'd like to help spread the word of our shenanigans, have a think about which of your friends would be most likely to enjoy this podcast, and then tell them about it. Use the hashtag OffGridPod if you post about us anywhere, please. And as ever, a review and a rating would be lovely. Thanks all. See you next time. Bye. I've lost it entirely.